King of Grace Church. My name is Toby Gaynor. I'm one of the pastors here. My privilege to be able to preach to us this morning. And uh, we're going to continue our message series. If you've been with us for some time, we'll continue our message series through First Thessalonians. Um, Pastor Paul is uh, starting his vacation this weekend, and so we've gone for the next few weekends. And so uh, Jeff, myself, and I think Brendan have an opportunity to, to preach, and we take the responsibility uh, very carefully. As always, we're very much aware of the need of God's, um, we need God's grace to preach. We all need it to hear. I'm aware that a few of us may be a little distracted by some sort of uh, sporting event later this afternoon. So I'm aware particularly that we need help this morning to concentrate and to be in the moment, as it were. So let me pray and ask for God's help and to give our attention to his word and to help me preach as I should. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that each and every day we can come before you for our daily bread, our needs in every regard. And this morning, at this moment, we need your help to sit under your word and to listen and to seek to be obedient. Lord, apart from you, uh, your words roll off of us like water off of a duck's back. But by your grace, you can sow them into our hearts where they may take root and yield a harvest of righteousness. And so we pray that that would be the result of this morning. Help me to preach. Help us to be attentive. And by your grace, Lord, by your work, any result in our lives may be for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me, please, to First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, where we find ourselves um, this morning. Having gone through the rest of the book, we are in the closing stages of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. And I'm going to read, we're just going to look at two verses today in chapter 5, verse 14 and verse 15. They'll be projected if um, you don't have a Bible with you, but I do encourage you if you have your Bibles and keep those open in front of you. Um, we'll be looking at that verse regularly through the message. So let me read verse 14 and verse 15 of chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. God's word to us this morning from First Thessalonians. And as we reach these closing verses in the letter, um, and we focus, we slow down a little bit and look at these verses one by one, they may seem a little short and punchy, like a parent um, giving their child a few last minute's words of advice before they maybe go off to college or they're going to go off on some long journey. At least that's the image I have in my mind. I kind of, I kind of see Paul finishing his letter and saying, you know, don't forget to brush your teeth. Write to me regularly. Always buckle up and wear a seatbelt. Don't talk to strangers. Those kind of short, punchy uh, phrases, kind of the things we come across this morning. And I'm sure you've all been in that situation, either on the delivery or on the receiving end. Um, and in those sorts of contexts, it's, it's important, isn't it? Um, the context of who's giving those statements. It's very meaningful when it comes from your parent. And there's a whole long, long list of unhurried conversation that goes along behind those statements or you know the individual. If those sorts of things were said to us by a complete stranger, 
they would seem pretty weird or abrupt or even rude. But coming from a parent, they make sense. And so Paul is giving a similar sort of um, a counsel to his family, those he considers his children in the faith in the church of Thessalonica. And so it's important that we take a moment to understand the verses we're going to look at this morning in the context of Paul's relationship with the church there and in the context of all that he's already said to them. These, these short kind of punchy statements don't stand in isolation, but they come at the end of a whole letter uh, that we've worked our way through. And as we do that this morning, as we understand the context of these verses, we're going to see that they're consistent with themes that we've already come across um, through the letter already. And overall, we're going to see that Paul's exhortation to the church in Thessalonica and the exhortation to us this morning is that we are to pursue peace with all by the practice of Christian love. We are to pursue peace with all through the practice of Christian love. And as we dig into the verses, we're going to see there's three elements to that that Paul highlights of what this Christian love looks like. Christian love is patient love. Christian love is pardoning love. And Christian love is persistent love. And before we get dug into those points uh, each in turn, I think it's helpful, again, to understand the context of why is Paul saying this in the first place? What are the issues, perhaps, in the church in Thessalonica, and perhaps in the issues in the church today, and even in King of Grace Church, that Paul is speaking to? And I think what he's trying to get at are two broad threats to peace within any church. Churches back in the day of um, the first century that Paul's writing to, but churches that exist today as well. Not threats to peace that have necessarily happened from outside the church, but threats to peace that come from within the church. Threats that uh, were real for the church in Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, sorry, and threats which are real for us today. And those threats are ones that come from our own responses to diversity within the church and threats to peace in our response to conflict. Diversity and even conflict, they don't have to threaten peace in the church. It's really how we respond to those things that can threaten peace. See, diversity can threaten peace in my response to it because I can selfishly assume that I'm the standard and everyone should be like me. And if everyone was me like me, there wouldn't be any issues because everyone would have their act together. And so clearly, if there are issues, you just need to be more like me. And in conflict, whether it's legitimate or not, however the conflict arises, can threaten our peace by how we respond to it because of how I choose to handle and respond to conflict. And so we're going to look at today in, in these verses from Paul's pa- this passage, Paul's exhortation to pursue peace with all through the practice of patient, pardoning, and persistent Christian love. So first of all, we're going to pursue peace by the practice of patient love. In verse 14, Paul addresses what Christian love should look like in the face of diversity within the church. And Paul highlights three specific types of people he's aware of exist within the Thessalonian church and also, I think, probably very likely exist within our own church today. But before we look at each one in particular, let's jump to the end of verse 14 where he says the overarching response to them all is we are to be at peace with, uh, sorry, we are to be patient with them all. You may remember 
Paul says a similar thing about love, what it looks like, in his letter to the Corinthians, a well-known passage of what the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you remember it, the first attribute says, love is patient and kind, it goes on, and then a whole bunch of other things. But the fact that Christian love is primarily, or our chief component of that, is that we are patient with one another. And it's worth noting, verse 14 starts out, we urge you, brothers, this verse is directed to every one of us in the church. This is not a, uh, a verse which is primarily for pastors. Um, you know, we, you could read this and think, okay, he's giving advice to how pastors should handle the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak within the congregation. And certainly the pastoral team are, are called to serve and counsel one another in specific examples. Last week we actually heard from verse 12, um, where pastors are called to admonish those within the flock. But this verse, starting out as he does, I urge you brothers and sisters is behind that word. These are verses which apply to every one of us. And so they're things that we all need to look at and listen to for how we as a congregation can serve one another through patiently loving each other and serving different people in their different contexts. So we all need to pay attention to what Paul is saying to us. So first of all, patient love responds to three different groups of people that he lists in verse 14. And the first one is patient love to the idol looks like admonishing them. Patient love to the idol looks like admonishing them. Now, when Paul talks about the idol, he's not talking about those who are out of work but wanting work or seeking work. Nor is he talking about legitimate leisure, God-ordained rest and relaxation. Both of those things are things that God... um, comes behind and and gives rest as a gift and exhorts us to seek work. So it's not idleness in that sense. But what Paul is talking about is those who have ceased to work and are ceased seeking work and are relying on the generosity of others to get through life and perhaps even relying on their daily needs being provided by the generosity of others. And those in the church in that situation, Paul says, they should be admonished or warned or instructed and urged to change. Now, admonishing is not a word we use very often. It can be hard to understand perhaps exactly what that looks like. Um, We actually have another example in Paul's practice. Um, Back in Acts chapter 20, we have a situation where Paul was talking to the, the church in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, we have a few words which help us understand a little bit more by what admonishing should look like. And we have those verses to put up there. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. He said, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. I suspect that the idea of admonishing for most of us is a little bit uh, intimidating, Um, perhaps not too sure about what it looks like or that we even want to do it. And so in those verses, I think Paul unpacks it a little bit by his own example. Admonishing should be done with compassion and perhaps even with tears as we we convey with words but also our emotion and our, our effect the love and care we have for people who are not serving as God's calling them to. 
It's something that we share consistently and repeatedly, potentially, not just as a one-off call. As Paul demonstrated, he says he did this for three years in teaching and, and admonishing the church in Ephesus. Appealing to people out of a heart of love that wants the individual to know and experience God's blessing. In this case, the blessing of receiving by serving. So, here's a little test for us. If you're wondering whether you have a word of admonition for someone, if you can't deliver it in a spirit of patient love, perhaps even with tears, don't deliver it at all. But don't stop there. Don't say, okay, not my job then. Ask God to give you the right heart so that you can be obedient to this verse. Again, recognize that we are all asked to do this as we come along one another. Now, it's entirely possible that the church in Thessalonica, the idlers, were more obvious. Um, maybe what, they were, what we would call today couch potatoes in terms of how they were relying on the church to serve them. But idleness can hide behind a disguise of being busy. And I think perhaps that's something that we are prone to or can be prone to in our, in our culture today. Busy in work, but avoiding the important work. It could be that it's parents who are busy with many things in their own lives, possibly parents who are a bit busy with many things in their children's lives, and yet avoiding the responsibility of truly discipling their children in the Christian faith and in godly character. Or it could be a husband who works hard to be successful in the workplace, but avoids the critical task of nurturing and caring for his wife and for her soul. Or it could be a person who comes regularly to church, but avoids the role that God has for them in serving within the body in the specific way that God would call them to serve and has equipped them to do so, as he's done, equipped every one of us to serve in different ways. It is possible that idleness can hide behind busyness. But however idleness may present itself, Christian brothers and sisters are called to bring admonition to one another patiently and with love, never harshly. And that can be our criteria for how we seek to serve one another in that way. The second type of person Paul brings before the Thessalonians here is that we are to be the patient love to the faint-hearted looks like encouraging them. Paul knew, Paul knew very well that there were some in the church there who were faint-hearted. And that doesn't mean that they were cowardly in any way, simply that they were discouraged in their faith. But entirely possible that they had experienced affliction for their faith. Paul has addressed affliction and suffering for being a Christian earlier in their letter. And particularly given their context, most likely Gentile Christians um, called out in, in uh, Gentile society. They had maybe even experienced affliction from their very own families and friends, ones whom they were re used to receiving love and care for, and now they only received affliction and suffering on account of the name of Jesus Christ. And because of this, although they had faith, they were greatly discouraged in their faith, potentially feeling very much alone and discouraged. And Paul urges the church to encourage them. It's actually part of what he did with them. If you have the Bible in front of you, just skip forward or get back into chapter um, 2. He talks about how, um, he says, you know how like a father with his children, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. That's the same word, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. But the word encourage pops up a lot in the Bible. Paul uses it multiple times in here, in the first of the Thessalonians. Um, But before we are quick to encourage one another with a little pep talk, a kind of a Christian version of, come on, you can do it. We need to think, or it's helpful to recognize um, the word he actually uses here in the original language. Um, it's actually used only twice in the book of Thessalonians, the one in our verse today in verse 15, as he mentioned before how as a father he sought to encourage them. The only other places it's used in the Bible is actually in John chapter, John's gospel in chapter 11. And it's around the death of Lazarus, if you know that story. Um, Lazarus, uh, potentially a follower of, of Jesus, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus dies. And as John records that account in his gospel, he uses this word encourage. We typically have it translated, though, as console or comfort. It's how he describes what the Jews do or were doing in terms of coming to Mary and Martha. They were coming to encourage, but again, it's typically translated comfort or console. So I don't know if, you, if you've had a, a circumstance where you've had to comfort someone, encourage them after the death of a loved one. But in reality, oftentimes, what you find is most comforting and encouraging is just your presence. Words can have meaning and benefit to them, but oftentimes the first immediate thing that somebody needs to be encouraged is just to know someone else is there. And so I wonder, in the case of a brother or sister whose faith is shaken in this way, whose courage is low, or faith is low, Certainly they can be built up with words of truth, of hearing God's truth. But perhaps that needs to come after first building them up by being with them so that they know they're not alone and that everyone in the world is not against them and that they are loved, loved by you and loved by God. Paul actually did this, gave an example of this for the Thessalonians. He was concerned about how they would respond to this affliction and You know, this is the Apostle Paul. He could have written them a letter. He could have written them God's words to build them up. Instead, what we read in the beginning of chapter 3 is that he sent Timothy. Timothy, who he treated as a son and was very dear to him, he wanted to care for the Thessalonians and be concerned that they may be faint-hearted by sending someone to be with them. Yes, to share God's truth and to encourage them with the truth, but primarily to be there in a physical presence. So we have opportunities like that today, don't we? To encourage those who may be faint-hearted in their faith. Yes, it can be encouraging to tell someone that you're praying for them. Yes, it can be encouraging perhaps to comment on their Facebook post, words of support. But how about inviting someone over for coffee? Or inviting yourself over for coffee? Or some other context where you can just be together? And not necessarily say much at all, but simply hang out. And know that that person, that person knows that they're not alone. And that there are other Christian brothers and sisters who love them and can come alongside them. The faint-hearted in our church need encouragement through our comforting and through our consoling. The um, third specific group that Paul calls out in his note here is that patient love to the weak looks like helping them. Here, Paul is 
probably using that word weak um, simply to refer to those in physical need. Um, he uses it elsewhere in other letters um, to sometimes talk about um, weakness in terms of their, length, uh, their extent of their faith. But I think in this term it's probably just talking about physical need, those who in some way or other need physical care. And we are all called to help them in that case. Literally, again, that word help, it's, it means to cling to, to be devoted to. So not simply help once in a while and think that we've done what we should or feel that we've, we've helped when we've, we've met a single need. Paul expects help within the church to the weak to be a reflection of somebody being devoted to someone else. And it may be that um, someone is in a circumstance where they are always in need of help. Or maybe it's in just for a season. And yet the church body can come alongside and show patient love through being there to help consistently and faithfully during that, that period of weakness. Let me make just a note here, an aside to these three categories. Um, because for all of us, and particularly anyone if you find yourself in that category of being faint-hearted, or maybe in terms of physical weakness and needing support, to be helped and to be served, both of those categories need a measure of openness and honesty amongst one another. So that brothers and sisters around you can know that that's how you're, you're feeling and what you're going through, so that God can then use them to minister to you as he intends. Likewise, for all of us, regardless of what season you're in, when you look around you, and if you think about these categories, from an external perspective, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak, can you tell any of them apart just by external appearance? They could look very similar. So before deciding what help a person may need, whether they should be admonished, whether they should be encouraged, or whether they should be helped, let's do well in asking careful and caring questions of one another. We should ask honestly and openly and, and, and answer them as well. How can I help you? How's, how's your soul right now? And, and answer those questions. We have context where we can do that. We have com community groups where we come alongside one another and can care for each other in that context. Be sure to, to share, if you're faint-hearted, what that looks like for you. If you are feeling weak and physically weak and just have physical needs, be sure to share of that. My wife's going into surgery on Friday. And one of the things, a lesson we learned many years ago, is it's a blessing to share needs with the church because it allows the church then to serve in the way God has equipped you to serve. And we've been blessed already by many people offering to help, help my family, help my wife and I um, through a period of recuperation after that. And I'm grateful for that, so thank you. But as I encourage you, don't hide weakness. Don't hide faint-heartedness. But be willing to share that amongst one another. On a Sunday after church, it's such a blessing to see everyone stay and talk. And, and that's a great context to, to talk, share about how to, the message that Sunday has, has affected you. Uh, or asking how has the message affected someone else. Uh, and sharing that and encouraging one another as God has called us to but patiently loving one another. Lost myself entirely where I am now. There was diversity in the church within Thessalonica, and so we should expect diversity within King of Grace Church. 
Diversity in, in how people are being obedient to God. Diversity in the measure of faith, one another, the strength of faith each of us has. Diversity in our physical abilities. We are all, regardless, we are all called to practice patient love for one another in the different ways that's to be applied, and Paul's given us some examples there. Now, if our response to diversity is one threat to peace within God's people, then the other threat, general threat, is our response to conflict. And Paul goes on into verse 15 to talk about how, Christians, how Christian love pursues peace in the face of conflict. And if the first point is that we, we pursue peace through patient love, the second point we see here is that Christian love pursues peace by the practice of pardoning love. In the beginning of verse 15, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Christian love should not practice retaliation. That verse is essentially the kind of the flip side of a familiar um, teaching that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, what we commonly call the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule, as it's commonly called, Jesus taught this. He said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, you also do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so Paul's exhortation, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, is, like you say, it's the kind of the flip side of that golden rule. Do you want someone to do evil to you? Usually the answer is no. Then don't do evil to one another. So this really follows on as a practical continuation from the practice of patient love for one another. In order not to retaliate when someone may do evil towards us, we need patience to check our own instinctive response to evil and to check it by God's standards. Now Paul is going to go on to say that Christian love has a positive response to evil. It's not simply a negative response, as it were, of not retaliating. And we'll see what that positive response is in a minute. But before we get there, we need to respond to evil, not simply with patient love, but with forgiving love. And to keep with my naming convention with the P's, I've, I've called it pardoning love. Now, I don't have time within this message, and it's not the context of the message, for this to be a complete discussion about what forgiveness looks like and how that affects and impacts relationships. I can say this, it is possible that we can forgive others the evil they commit against us. But unless they repent of evil, both before God and to us, it is most likely that our relationships will continue to be affected until they receive forgiveness from us. And God's Word has plenty to say on the subject of forgiveness. It also has plenty to say on how we should, to, uh, we should handle and speak to an evildoer. But that's, those are two different messages and not this one. Here, Paul is addressing the church in general on how we are to respond to evil. And, and note this. He's, he's in, instructing us on how to respond to evil within the church. Do you have that in your thinking about the church? The diversity we find within the church includes elements in all of us, myself included, that are still wrong and still sinful. And although God is working to change me and God is working to change each one of you, 
it means that we are most likely to encounter forms of evil in one, one another. I heard a story once about the preacher Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he was at a dinner party once and um, he was talking with another Christian man and this Christian man was trying to convince Spurgeon that this man um, was no longer sinful, that he was perfect. God's work had been, was complete in him. And Spurgeon was trying to uh, explain to him from the scriptures that um, that's not the case, that perfection isn't attained in any one of us until Christ returns. But this man wasn't having any of it. He was quite adamant, no, I, I'm perfect now, actually. Um, so Spurgeon decided to take a different tact, and I think only Charles Spurgeon can do this, so I don't advocate this. So what he did is rather than continuing to reason with the man, he took his glass of wine and he threw it in the man's face. At which point the man erupted in anger and Spurgeon calmly sat down and said, ah, there's the old man. He just needed reviving. <laughs> so I think it's one reason though why the world and the media in particular fails to recognize the context of the church, and why the media makes such a big deal out of church scandals, even though they can be scandals, is because the world has no theology of man or the church, or at least they have a bad theology of the world, of, the man, of man and the church. The world expects the church to be full of good people, at least good by the world's standards. And when sin is exposed or seen within the church, they're very quick to cry, hypocrite. Now, I'm not in any way looking to excuse sin or scandals within the church. They grieve God's heart and they dirty Christ's name and so that we should grieve after them as well and we should be prepared to respond appropriately and God's word gives us plenty of direction on how to do that. But are you and I prepared to encounter sin with our Christian brothers and sisters. And in being prepared to encounter sin with our Christian brothers and sisters, are you then prepared to pardon that sin? And typically, we're not talking about major newsworthy scandals. We're talking about everyday stuff, like encountering impatience and temper and gossip and selfish jealousy and lies. Things that exist within each and every one of us that God is at work in, but they still remain. So are you prepared to encounter them? We cannot control what we will encounter in one another. What God calls us to work on is how we control our own response. And we have a choice to pursue peace by practicing pardoning love. We are not to respond with retaliation, repaying evil for evil, but we are to lay the offense before God and return to the individual or individuals pardoning love. But just as the evil we may encounter might take many forms, so too I think the evil we perhaps attempted to return in retaliation can also take different forms. We don't, doesn't, just because it says repay evil for evil, it doesn't necessarily mean repay the same kind of evil with evil. It could be that when a person fails to follow through on their word to you, 
You respond by giving them the cold shoulder, withdrawing your love and fellowship for some period of time. Could be that you're a parent who responds to your child's disobedience by losing your temper and verbally putting them down. Could be you're a wife who responds to her husband's selfish neglect and lack of care with gossip among their friends. Now, knowing that I'm still dealing with remaining sin as we all are, it's worth asking God to help us examine ourselves and ask, where is it? Where are our tendencies to repay evil for evil? God is kind and gentle. He works in us over a whole lifetime. So don't be afraid of asking God those sorts of questions that he might show you too much. But he will, I'm sure, show you areas in which you want, he wants you to grow. And when he does that, repent. Repent to before God and repent to perhaps people impacted by your tendency, if you have one, in particular areas of responding to evil with evil. I will say this about giving an apology to other people, though. In this situation, repaying evil for evil, your apology should not make any reference to what the other person has done. Don't say, I'm sorry I lost my temper with you, but it's because you did this. That immediately undermines your apology. I said this isn't a message about forgiveness, so I'll talk to you more about that another time if you want. But that's what I would say. Don't make a reference to, well, my evil was because of your evil. God has called us all to repent, and we can do so. We can, we can own our repentance and our sin, and God will give grace for that. And so ask God to help you grow in responding to evil patiently and with pardoning love. So Paul continues in verse 15 to tell us that we should pursue peace not only with pardoning love, but that we should pursue peace with all by the practice of persistent love. He finishes that verse, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here, Paul makes the scope of his instruction very clear and very simple. It applies to all of those within God's family and in his church, that's the one another, and to everyone, that's those outside the church. So in this case, he's making it clear no one is left out in receiving, or who should be receiving, our persistent love. And the word he has there, and the, the ESV translates it as seek. It's not a passive seeking. It's not a kind of a, well, I'm kind of keeping my eyes open for opportunities to do good, just as I kind of see them as I come along. It has behind it a very active idea. It, sometimes it's translated pursue or strive. It's not a you know, I put down my, my reading glasses somewhere and I can't find them. Um, I'll look for them. I'll seek them during the course of my day. It's more like the idea of a parent being separated from their child in a store. All plans go on hold. And now seeking my child becomes my main and my sole focus until the child is found. And Paul's saying that should be our attitude towards doing good towards other people both within the church and outside of the church. So let me ask you, is, is that your attitude towards others? Actively looking to do good to anyone you possibly can. How can you, 
how could you grow in that attitude and behavior? For example, for when you come to church, preparing beforehand your heart and mind to want to do good for at least one other person. Or how about when you go to work? Or just during the course of your day? Or when you come home from work, being intentional to think, I'm going to seek to do good to someone, or at least one person. Well, what about when we should be doing this? When should we be pursuing good to those around us? When it's convenient for us? When we have the energy to do it? When we, when we feel like it? Well, Paul intentionally adds one little word in answering that question. In verse 15, he says, always. And that word always, it means always. But not in the sense of um, constant activity, more in the sense of constant disposition. And it should appear regularly in our lives so that somebody might use the expression, oh yes, they're always doing good. Paul's point here is for us to pursue peace by the practice of persistent love that always, always strives to do good to everyone. Wow. This patient, pardoning, persistent Christian love sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And if I'm honest, it seems way beyond me. I mean, maybe okay, maybe I have my moments when I can do okay in this for a little while. But I know for myself, there are many times when I don't respond in love to diversity amongst Christian brothers and sisters. I find it hard to be patient when I'm thinking, if only people were like me, everything would be okay. And I find it hard to, be, um, to pardon evil against me when it seems like I am hardwired at least in certain circumstances, to respond with retaliation rather than pardoning love. And when it comes to persistent love, I do that pretty well, but the person I love most persistently is myself. And that makes it hard to always pursue the good of others. So in just two short verses, Paul has set the bar mighty high, and if we're honest, higher than any of us could achieve by ourselves. And at this point, it is vitally important that we remember the context of these verses, and that Paul is not just blurting these verses out in a vacuum, and they're not coming to the Thessalonians from a total stranger. The Thessalonican church would hear these verses in the context of the whole letter and in the context of who they knew Paul to be, he'd been with them for three years or more or some time. And we can hear them in the context of the whole letter. In fact, we can hear them in the context of all of Paul's writings. And we can hear them in the context of all of Scripture. And we only need to look back a couple of chapters in this letter to see where the love we're meant to practice as Christians comes from. I think we have this to show, but... In chapter 3, verse 12, Paul's prayer for the church is that he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love.
for one another and for all. So the good news for all of us in seeking to be obedient to today's verses is that the love we are to practice and this high standard that we are unable to meet by ourselves, it's not meant to come from us anyway. It's actually meant to come from the love that God provides to his children. And what's even better is that we don't need to sit around and wait for it. So, okay, when God gives me this love, then I will start loving people. If we are a Christian, then God's love has already been revealed to us. And actually, the beginning of this letter to the church, Paul wrote this. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel that he speaks of, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, puts it this way. He says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love communicated to us through the gospel and displayed in Jesus Christ, in his life and in his death upon the cross. It shows us God's divine patience with each and every one of us. It shows us His divine pardoning love to forgive us through the exchange of Jesus' righteousness for my wickedness on the cross. And it shows us His divine persistent love that pursued me even when I was rebelliously going my own way and still pursues me even though I'm a, a wayward child of God now. But the gospel isn't simply an example to follow. That's not the good news. The good news is that it is a message of hope. A hope of new life from Christ's new life from the dead that we can receive new life and power by God's Holy Spirit. God himself dwelling in us and being with us and equipping us now to live in accordance with his ways. If, if you're not yet a Christian, I am so glad that you are here this morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening through this message. But I want you to be clear in what you understand from this message about Christianity. That Christianity is not simply a message about living according to some high moral standards. I've spoken all throughout the message about the practice of Christian love. And that's not to suggest that Christians are able to love better or more differently than other people, and that's why they are Christians. Christian love is so called because it is the love of Christ that controls us. We have received it, and we are now able to practice it before one another and to all. And Christ's love is on offer to you today. He calls for you to receive it, and I I urge you to receive his love I'd love to talk to you more, perhaps after the service, or you can talk with the person you came with. But I'd love to, you to understand that you can receive this love, and you need to receive this love before you can consider practicing or meeting the standards Paul is talking about. For all of us, even as Christians, the call to pursue peace by the practice of patient, pardoning, and persistent Christian love can seem impossible at times. The reality is that it's harder than we think. And we can't do it at all without God's grace. 
But the great news is, is that we are never apart from him. We are never far from receiving the help he need, we, we need. And God promises to be with us and to supply to us every grace needed to show love to one another and to practice the love he calls us to. Paul says this, I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Most of you will know that we're going through the Alpha course uh, in our church on Thursday evenings. It's a great course um, to learn more about Christianity. And it's not too late to join if you are interested in coming along or if you want to bring a friend. But a couple of weeks ago, um, during one of the talks, we heard a very powerful story that relates directly to today's message. I've, I've read it before, but I think it is more powerful to hear it from the people involved. So I'm going to close with a very short couple of minute video. And it starts off by hearing from Nicky Gumbel, who's the pastor who created Alpha. And after the message, Jeff will come up and lead us in transition into communion. So let's, let's watch this video and you'll see how it ties in to our need for God's grace to practice. One of my great heroes is Corrie ten Boom. She's a Dutch Christian who hid Jews during the war. She was caught and Corrie and her sister and her father went to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her father and her sister Betsy died there. She's an amazing woman and after the war she went and spoke to others about forgiveness. She was speaking in a church in Germany one time and at the end of her talk she recognised the man coming up to her and she could see it was one of the most cruel guards from Ravensbrück. She picture him as he was then. And as he came up to her, he said, I was a guard at Ravensbrook. He didn't recognize her, but she knew, she recognized him. She could see him, and she remembered walking naked past him. She said she felt so cold and so angry. He said, I've become a Christian now. I know I did some very cruel things, but I've received God's forgiveness for the cruelties I've done. And I ask God's grace for an opportunity to ask one of my very victims for forgiveness. Fraulein Ten Boom, once you were forgiven, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who has given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. <laughs>